the Bain Free Radio Hour. On the podcast, mass market morning stars hit the target, pass through, and take out the minions beyond. Vapid vampire blood and antediluvian floods, plus we continue with the complete audiobook serialization of David Weber's Uncompromising Honor. All right now. Welcome to the Bain Free Radio Hour podcast. It's an honor to have you along. I'm Bain Senior Editor, Tony Daniel. This time we have part one of an interview with Eric Flint and Charles E. Gannon talking about 1637, No Peace Beyond the Line, the latest entry in the Ring of Fire alternate history series created by Eric Flint. This is about the um, West Virginia coal mining town that gets thrown back into the past in Europe. This one follows the adventure of uptimer Captain Eddie Cantrell and Admiral Martin Tromp as they face down the Spanish Navy and the Caribbean and try to establish an age with some equality 300 years earlier, uh, while at the same time turning a profit for the United States of Europe and the Dutch. And we continue with the complete audiobook serialization of David Weber's Honor Harrington series masterpiece, Uncompromising Honor. Now here's the news. The November Bain eBooks Leap into Leaden sale continues. Sharon Lee and Steve Miller's wonderful Leaden series is on sale throughout November in eBook form. You can get $2 off accepting the Lance, which is regularly $6.99 and it's on sale for $4.99 all month long. Plus all the other Leaden series eBooks, all of them are $1 off all the way through the end of November. Available wherever Bain eBooks are sold. That's Amazon and, and all the other outlets, as well as at Bain.com. Hey, the Bain November mass market editions are out and at booksellers everywhere. Speaking of that leap into Leaden eBook sale, out in mass market now is Accepting the Lance by Sharon Lee and Steve Miller. Exiled from Liad after bombing a city to save it from the Department of the Interior's infernal weapons and plans, Clan Corval has gone to the ground on the backwater planet Sherbleek, whose people are as untamed as its weather. But the Department of the Interior is not done with Clan Corval yet, and Sherbleek and Corval ships and people everywhere are in its crosshairs. Also out in mass market edition in November, is Antediluvian by Will McCarthy. In a brilliant and dangerous brain-hacking experiment, Harv Lionel and Tara Mukujira are about to discover entire lifetimes of human memory coded in our genes and reveal ancient legends from knights and trolls to flood myths to the birth of humanity itself that are very, very real and very deadly. Finally out now is The Best of Jerry Pornell, edited by John F. Carr. For nearly half a century, Jerry Pornell's name has been synonymous with hard-hitting, idea-driven, wonder-inducing science fiction. Now for the first time, Pornell's best short work is collected together in a single volume. Here are over a dozen short stories, each with a new introduction by editor and longtime Pornell assistant, John F. Carr. 
Best of Jerry Pornell, edited by John F. Carr, Antediluvian by Will McCarthy, and Accepting the Lance by Sharon Lee and Steve Miller are now in mass market editions at booksellers everywhere. Check them out. This is part one of a two-part interview with Eric Flint and Charles E. Gannon discussing 1637, No Peace Beyond the Line. Part two will be available next time on the podcast. I want to welcome Eric Flint and Charles E. Gannon to the podcast. Hello, Eric and Chuck. Back. Hello. How are you doing? Uh, Eric Flint is a modern master of alternate history fiction and lots of other things. With uh, three million books in print, he's the author, created probably more like four now, five uh, of the multiple New York Times bestselling Ring of Fire series, starting with the first novel, 1632, and um, building up to the one we're going to talk about today. With David Drake, he has written six popular novels in the Belisarius alternate Roman history series, and with David Weber, collaborated on the crown of slaves sub-series in the honor harrington uh big gigantic series and just enormous amount of other books it, it would be, take us all day to list um, lots and lots of stuff eric was for many years also a labor union activist uh who lives near chicago illinois but in the meaningless uh state of indiana where his vote doesn't count <laughs> <laughs> And uh, Charles E. Gannon, Chuck is the author of the Compton Crook, uh, is the author of the Compton Crook award-winning Nebula-nominated Kane Reorden series, starting with uh, first entry, Fire with Fire. And now we are up to, uh, I think it's book five, uh, Mark of Cain. Um, he is the co-author with Eric Flint of 1636, The Papal Stakes, 1636, Commander Cantrell in the West Indies. Um, what's the, there's another... Vatican, Vatican, Vatican sanctions. Vatican sanctions. Vatican sanctions. Yeah. Um, Steve White, co-author of the Starfire series entries um, that he's done, and he is the author of multiple short stories. Um, some really great um, short stories and novellas as well, um, and a bunch of other stuff. He is a member of Sigma, the SF think tank, and has advised various intelligence and defense agencies since the start of the millennium. Um, a former professor. Chuck now lives in Annapolis, Maryland, with his wife and children. Um, out now at Booksellers is 1637, No Peace Beyond the Line, the latest entry. Here it is, beautiful uh, Tom Kidd cover, as usual. Um, the uh, latest entry in the Ring of Fire series and the sequel, this is the follow-up book to 1636, Commander Cantrell in the West Indies. Um, so let's talk about that. It's Captain Eddie Cantrell and Admiral Martin Tromp are back, um, raising hell in the Caribbean, separately uh, sailing about. Um, Eddie's in the Intrepid, and Tromp's got a fleet. Tell us where we are in the story, who these people um, represent, and uh, sort of set up the uh, the as we're as we're starting um, with the uh, with the observation blimp and what's going to why are they there? They're off the coast of uh, Dominica? Dominica, yes. Yeah. You or me, Eric? Hi, you. Okay. <laughs> so, at any rate, um, about, uh, at this point, four or five months have passed since, uh, since the last events, Commander Cantrell 
they are where they are, aiming, uh, facing right out into the depths of the Atlantic at Dominica, because this is where historically uh, La Flota, the, the big fleet from Spain, would come every year. Um, and no one's expecting this because they're doing something that no one has done before, which is almost everybody tried to catch La Flota on the way out, because that's when it had the silver. Except Going for the, east. Since, pardon me? Going, uh, Going east. east yeah. Exactly. Uh, carrying the, following the Atlantic current. But uh, this, at this particular point, um, you're talking about a very f uh, fledgling colonies, uh, short on everything, uh, Dutch colonies in a, in, a couple of, in a couple of islands, predominantly centered on St. Eustatia. And uh, the, 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 the brainstorm comes up, wait a minute, actually, this would be a lot more valuable to us if we got it coming in. We need those supplies because that's what La Flotta brought in. It brought supplies to everything along the Spanish main, to Jamaica, to Hispaniola, to Puerto Rico, to, to Cuba, and then all the way up the Texas coast, although there wasn't a lot on the Texas coast before. It, so it was empty, gathering silver, gathered at Havana, and then eventually went on back to the New World. No one ever thought about stealing it for gunpowder and nails and food and, and all that sort of stuff. Well, these guys do. And, uh, and so they have, uh, they, because of the, the books uh, from, once again, that, that pesky high school library in Grantville, uh, they've got a pretty good idea of where it's going to come. They've got uh, observation balloons up. They've got ships that are able to talk to each other by radio. So they've got a very big catcher's mitt, if you will, in terms of how the fleet would come in. And they have a lot of surprises for it. And I won't say anything more than that. Um, what gives them the right to attack Spanish sh shipping? This is 1632. Who needs a damn right? Um, but, but, <laughs> it's in the title, okay? Nobody's yeah. beyond the line. Uh, officially, the United States of Europe and, and Spain are sort of at peace. Although I'm not sure they ever actually signed a peace treaty, but in any event, they've, hostilities have ceased in Europe for the moment. But it was the Spanish themselves who always had the attitude that the, the Treaty of Torcedillas, which the Pope created, drew a line down the Western Hemisphere, and the Pope declared that everything west of the line was Spanish and everything on the other side was Portuguese. But the Spanish attitude was always that if you cross the line, there was no peace beyond the line, no matter, you know, what treaties might exist in Europe. And so in the New World, the forces of the USC in practice are at war with Spain in alliance with the Dutch forces, which officially and in theory are not actually forces of the Netherlands. They're an independent fleet under the control of Admiral Trump. And the reason he can get away with that is because he originally took his fleet, what was left of it, to the New World after the Battle of Dunkirk, where the Spanish, along with the French, defeated the Dutch because of French treason, treachery. And so he has never officially given his allegiance to the new government in the Netherlands that was created when the Spanish reconquered it. Now that, that is historical, right? No. The That's Spanish were your... never able to reconquer the Netherlands. 
Spaniards. That's the big thing okay. we made. The Spanish were never able to conquer the, the, the seven That's Dutch. where they spent all their gold, trying to That's all constantly trying to take the Netherlands. Yeah. Of men's lives, uh, not to mention they killed a lot of people on the other side. Uh, but in, in real history, they always were able to hold on to the southern Netherlands, which today is called Belgium, but they were never able to reconquer the seven Dutch provinces. What happens in 1633, the second novel in the series, is that the young, younger brother of the King of Spain, who was then called Don Fernando, or the Cardinal Infante, he was a bishop officially, uh, he actually does manage to reconquer the Netherlands, the Dutch provinces, except he's stymied at Amsterdam. He can't take Amsterdam. And without taking Amsterdam, especially after the USC defeats the League of Ostend in the novel 1634, the Baltic War, yes, people should be reading all these books. Uh, what happens then is that the, the uh, Don Fernando in the Netherlands realizes that if he doesn't cut a deal with the Dutch, with the Prince of Orange, then he's going to be driven out sooner or later because the USC armies will come in. So what he does is he and the Prince of Orange cut a deal where they reunify the Netherlands, but religious freedom is guaranteed. And in addition, the Dutch provinces have autonomy internally. So anyway, that's the background. But the point is Trump in, is still officially not under the rule of the King of the Netherlands. Although in practice, he is. It's just that it's a very informal arrangement because the king in the Netherlands does not want to have to go to war with his older brother, the king of Spain. And for his own reasons, the king of Spain doesn't have to go to war with his younger brother because he's got enough grief on his plate because of all the events that were depicted in other novels in the series, two of which Chuck and I wrote. Uh, which is, has to do with what Cardinal Borgia did by declaring himself the new pope in Italy. Anyway, I so, know it's complicated, but that is the background. Trump is kind of freelancing um, yes, in a way. Yes, in practice, yeah. Officially, he's a freelancer who's allied with the USC forces in the New World who are under sort of the command of, of uh, Eddie Cantrell. Eddie, remind me, Chuck, who is the... Eddie's not actually. Well, he is now. Is the problem was that the, the person who was sent over was, uh, and I pulled historicals pretty much right and left, even down to some junior officers. Um, but Prosmund uh, was a, uh, I believe, a, a Danish, no, uh, Swedish. No, Danish. He was a Danish uh, captain of this time, and he is killed in the first book, uh, both because he... He's trying to score points with the king uh, to make his uh, his wife happy, um, and also because he's getting he, as is the case, and it was I think important to show this, the the downtimers have their most advanced individuals have received training on the steamships, and he's put in command of one of the steamships, but just because you know how it it works in principle, and just because you've taken it through some trials, that doesn't mean that you really will be able to to sort of work to the nuances of it in a, in a sort of, in actual, in actual what I will call naval combined arms, which is kind of a contradiction in terms, but there are a lot of moving pieces and there are so many new pieces that he does not understand that he puts himself in unnecessary hazard 
um, uh, for a variety of reasons, and he winds up paying the price with his life. Once he dies, and uh, then there's another ranking individual who is really not um, not in line for it, a guy by the name of Ovegede, who is actually another historical, uh, quite an explorer, not so much a military captain, who is uh, who constantly in the course of the first book is deferring to to Eddie. He will he will step in and take control at certain key moments, but he becomes invaluable in terms of tra training new mariners because that's one of the things they're doing. They're, they're, they are expanding their naval capacity. Yeah, that's an important part of the book is this, this training is this part of sort of the secret weapon that, that Eddie has. Um, Absolutely. Uh, one of the things that shows up in this book and will show up in the, the, the eventual follow-on to this, which is tentatively titled War to the Knife, um, is about that the, the, Dutch, the Dutch and the Venetians, probably of just about anybody right now in Europe, are the ones who are already embracing a certain kind of method about producing things, training people, um, integrating, integrating different systems. If you were to take a look at what the, the Venetians at this time, their rate of being able to produce galleys and the way they did it, it very, I mean, Henry Ford may have invented the industrial uh, assembly line, but the Venetians really started that, that critter off. And the Dutch that are, that are currently there are sort of seeing the system, if you will. And they are just, they're, they're buying into that big time. And that is making, you're, you're absolutely right. You know, a lot of people will want to focus on the size of the guns and the size of the ships and how fast they go. And, but there's a, deeper, there's a deeper issue going on. And it is that training and it is that sense of method. Yeah, and the um, the the integration of the uh, uptimer technology that they've been able to develop with the the method is really cool. The way that that y'all work it out, so set up the geopolitics a little bit more because I know what Eric really wants to do is eliminate slavery. Um, so he ain't alone. He ain't alone. <laughs> I, I, I got if you came back in time, if you were thrown back in time, um, and you happened to sail the Caribbean and you knew that there was going to be slaves and sugar and plantations uh, and all that, you might want to do that, right? Well, here's the thing. The, um, the 3,500 approximately Americans that came through the time transposition in the town of Granville, um, probably because the West Virginia town, given the history of West Virginia, but I, I think it would be true of Americans pretty much any part of the country. Um, have a very definite attitude towards slavery that comes from the history of the United States. And I don't really want to go through that again. Um, the problem though is they're in Europe and they are completely engrossed in the process of doing what they can to contribute to building a democratic society in Central Europe. And that's the reality of life. You know, how much of an impact they can have on what's happening in the Atlantic and in the New World, the coast of Africa, from where they are, you know, there are limits to what they can do in the real world. So they are trying in various ways to figure out ways they can have an impact on it. And one of the ways is what it develops in the course of the the whole series of stories, and it's not just these two novels. I, I just uh, finished a, um, well, I haven't quite finished it because I got to wait for a couple more things to come in, but it's going to be a long novella or short novel that I'm doing with uh, Gorkoff and Paula Goodlett that, that's set in New Amsterdam. 
um, right around the same time as as our novel. Um, that has to do with how the Dutch are developing there. But one of the things they do is because of the close relation the United States of Europe has with the Dutch, um, and the fact that for their own reasons, the Netherlands, and that includes uh, uh, King Fernando, want to stay on good terms with the United States of Europe, for the good and simple reason, if no other, that's the one country that could crush them if they really went at it. Um, so they want to stay on good terms, and besides which, there are a lot of commercial advantages. And so they are pressuring the Dutch, the Netherlanders, to outlaw slavery in the New World because they have leverage over it. And for various reasons, some of which are explained in this novel, some of which are going to be explained later, the, the Netherlanders are open to that. And it helps that, that the Admiral in the Trump himself is anti-slavery. Not just anti-slavery, but he was actually a slave. He was himself. In the, in the sense of more, more uh, hostage for ransom twice by the, uh, by the, the, um, the Tunisian Algerian pirates. Yeah. So uh, he has a very personal stake in this. Right. And we are, don't forget, we're at a stage in history, 1630s, where slavery in the slave trade is still, except for the Spanish and Portuguese, it's very much in its infancy. It's not, you can't really say it's in its infancy in the Spanish and Portuguese territories. Um, it's a little further along than that, but it's nothing like what it became, you know, say a hundred years later or even mm -hmm. half a century later. And the, so the main instigators are the Spanish. And so they are the bad guys in a way because of- They are the bad guys in, for a whole lot of reasons, a lot of which have to do with the position they occupy in Europe. Um, um, you don't have to vilify the Spanish in this period to, to just recognize the fact that they were, if you're trying to advance the world in general and Europe in particular along the lines of a more democratic society, the Spanish are not your friends. Let's put it that way. I think that's fair to say that that the the Spanish monarchy is not going to be in favor of yeah. that in any way, shape, or form. And they are very powerful. So you're going to wind up in conflict with them. Um, Who else is there? So we have the French somewhere, because, and we have um, the uh, we got the Dutch uh, and the Danes. Well, you've got you've got um, in addition to the Danes, you've also got through through the, it, the the Danes late come along with the Swedes. They essentially come over as part of the USE, which is a bit of a tangle to begin with. But also one of the things that that was a, sort of a godsend uh, to the Dutch and also for the dramatic scope of the the novel is that when uh, when the English, who are also part of the the traitorous hordes at the Battle of Ostend uh, or Battle of Dunkirk rather. Um, they, uh, the English, as you may remember, Charles seeds all the New World holdings. Now, there's later argument about who meant, meant exactly what, but the, the properties in the Caribbean at this point are completely cut loose on their own. And there are some fairly sizable properties in the Caribbean at this point. St. Kitts has a, a very decent population at this point. Barbados has a considerable population. And so does Bermuda. While not considered in the Caribbean, well, it's on the way, it's on the way to only two places, there and the mainland. 
And all of these have been cut loose, totally cut loose. So there are, there's a natural uh, alliance of need that, that comes along there. And I would say it's probably, it doesn't hurt that, that the, if you will, the new lingua franca uh, is Amadeutsch with, and the Americans can shift into English of their version um, very, very quickly. And that I think so that you've got a bunch of things that made it a, a natural sort of coalescence of, of these were sort of poker chips laying on the table because, you know, the player left <laughs> and the new, the new players come and say, oh, for me, and, and, and do so. So you do have a lot of people in play there. And it would be, it would probably be um, very wrong to ignore uh, the fact that you have the, the, the memory. At, uh, so you've got the Kalinaga, you've got all the native peoples. Yeah, there. I was going to ask you about that. So yeah, talk about the, the indigenous cultures that are there, because well, you did a great job of, of painting the interaction between the Europeans and these cultures. And I mean, it's a major part of the book. It, it is, and it's a major strategic part of the book. And it follows on actually from, from Commander Cantrell, because the one of the major individuals we see representing the the um, the native peoples, um, not not in not in the political sense, but in that that's that character, you know, that's in that sort of uh, negotiation tete-a-tete with um, with uh, Eddie Cantrell early on, was from the first book and is also a um, again is a historical. There is a there is a, a Tigerman who was the one killed in Saint Kitts. Um, very interesting stories behind that. I mean, the history of this this area is is bloody, and because the victors changed so often, you don't even get the uniformity of narrative of that you get when you you know when you say victors write the history. Well, so many of these islands changed hands so very often that the history that's come to us is is kind of like a, a patchwork quilt of of anecdotes and references, and and we really don't know who did what to whom. But uh, the the um, the the chief of the Kalanago on uh, on what we would call Guadeloupe because it would be French, so I'm sorry about my Spanish pronunciation there, is um, is representing the Kalanago who are related to but not exactly uh, part of the the main um, the the main uh, the Arawak people who are essentially peoples who came up from South America and sort of rolled through the Caribbean and displaced a group called the Taino. Now the Taino, of course, if you think that Spanish treatment of their imported slaves was bad, you really want to, you want to simply enter these two words, three words in a, in a, in a Google search. Uh, Spanish, Taino, which is spelled T-A-I-N-O, and genocide. Uh, the Taino population was predominantly on um, on Hispaniola, so Haiti and uh, and, and um, the uh, Dominican Republic, and uh, they were wiped out. And the numbers that you're talking about that were wiped out were 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 uh, there even by modern standards. It you kind of wonder how they got around to all that. I mean, it's it's just the number of Spanish there, and the methods at their disposal you look at the numbers and you say, my God, they, it must have been a nonstop killing spree. And so all of this is very much in play because all of this is the Taino, they were only, they only sort of disappeared as a, as a force 
100 years ago. And there are many of their descendants all over these islands, and they remember. So this is a, this was, um, how can I put it? I, I'm never going to say this was fun to play with, but it was rich, rich, fertile narrative soil in which to, in, in which to take a look at, at a part of the world and a time of the world where uh, we, there was an opportunity here for Grantville, as Eric was saying, to make a difference. And if they were thinking, if they were thinking, you know, the, the cotton plantations of the South, actually at this point, the, the, the numbers, the, the numbers of the new world, the, the, the natives that have, been, that have been killed, the Aboriginal peoples, it is simply astounding. And all of that and it is, is sort of in play. So, um, so that, was, that is a very major part of the book and it dovetails into the, it's, is it about slavery and the model we think about it? Yes, but it, it, it really is about freedom versus slavery, period. And, and in, in that book, this was, a, this, was a, this was very gratifying. Let me not say fun. This was very gratifying to write, particularly some of the scenes between the slaveholders, the Dutch slaveholders on St. Eustatia and the, the, if you will, proto-abolitionists who don't even realize they're going to be abolitionists. In many cases, the, the sort of the, the royalty, the young royalty and arist aristocratic women who've come over from Denmark and they get, they, they get incensed, partially because they know what it's like to be chattel too. They're, 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 you know, advantageous marriage chess pieces. And they can, and they, you know, they say it's not, our lives are not at, at risk or anything like that, but we know what it's like not to be masters of our own destiny. Severity is the, dif the difference, and it's a big difference, but we understand that. And that created for me some of the, the scenes I least, ex I least foresaw and I most, was most gratified writing. Yeah. Well, um, I, my, my favorite part of the book is whenever Europeans and, uh, and the Indians are talking. Um, with each other because they're trying to grasp each other's culture and they don't quite have a handle on it. Uh, Eddie is particularly good at, at sort of uh, bridging this. That's his, uh, one of his, his big skills. Um, one yes. of the things that, that's, it's going to come more to the fore in later um, volumes of the series, but one of the things there are two things about the real history of the New World that the that the Americans in Granville would like to at least ameliorate. Um, in the case of slavery, hopefully just eradicate it. But the other one is what happened to the indigenous populations, which um, most Americans don't feel really good about. Um, you know, and they don't. I mean, it's uh, I don't know. I can't think of anybody I've ever met who's proud of the Trail of Tears. Um, you know, or, or who doesn't think that it was an atrocity. I mean, I'm sure there's somebody somewhere, but there aren't very many. And, but it's a very tricky issue of, well, okay, but how do you stop that? Because the fact is the old world is now in contact with the new world and it has been for what, a century and a half by now. Uh, there's no way to roll that back. Um, most of the death due to disease has actually already happened. Um, it, there will continue to be epidemics, but, but the really terrible epidemics happened pretty early on after the contact because there was no resistance whatsoever to them. There's and so, also because the, that initial contact was frequently with very dense amaranth populations. Yes. Whereas yes, when yes. it hit the Iroquois, I mean, it might yeah, yeah, right, decimate yeah. a town or two, but 
they were yeah. so dispersed it didn't have that that it didn't reach critical mass right that's like 90 percent of the population was wiped out by european disease well, i've never i've never bought that no you, you don't okay. uh, no i don't believe those figures the reason i don't is there's no here's what happens really with with epidemics or pandemics is the really dangerous ones are the ones that kill off about a third of the population because they keep spreading uh, like the bubonic plague. The, the ones that are so virulent, like Ebola, will kill off 90% of the people. Ebola doesn't tend to spread because it burns out so quickly. Yep. Um, and what happens is surrounding villages practice <laughs> quarantine and they practice it very ruthlessly. It's like, you know, sorry, you guys are sick, but you're not leaving that village and if you try, we'll kill you. Um, and so something like Ebola, diseases that have 90% rates are actually not the ones that tend to become giant epidemics. So I've always been skeptical of those figures. Yet at the same time, you know, smallpox is kind of sui generis. No, no, look, it, you don't, you have- I'm not gonna argue with it. All right, Eric, you're right. You know, all this, but I'm just saying that, that Never mind. This gets us into a whole. But I completely, yeah. But anyway, there was, whole, there was Europeans got them coming and going. A long time about the population figures in a new world and so forth. But the point is that that there's no way you you can at this point stop it. It's simply impossible. But the question is, what can you do to at least ameliorate it? And there's there's two things that that at least that our, the main hero of the series, Mike Stearns, has figured out from the beginning. One of them is do whatever you can to make sure that no one European power has a really big dominant position in North America. Because it was when the English became the English and, and, and essentially were just able to sweep over the continent. That at that point, for one thing, the native tribes can't play Europeans off against each other, which they were quite good at doing prior to that, and vice versa. But the other reason you get an enormous wave of settlers that after a while, it was the settlers that made the whole thing impossible to deal with because the numbers were just so huge. Um, you know, I, I mean, at a certain point, it just, you know, Indians just got overwhelmed. I mean, it was that simple. Um, if you can keep everything dispersed so that, you know, there's contact, but it's going to take longer, it's going to be more complex, it's going to be less of a juggernaut kind of effect, then you're giving some time at least for the cultural adjustment to take place and hopefully whatever emerges will be better than what actually yeah. happened in real history. And it helps. And I think there's the a, there's a, I'm sorry, go ahead, Tony. And it helps if you know the future because you've come from. Oh, sure, 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 of course. Yeah, yeah. And, and I think another thing, another thing that is, is frequently, you know, folks say, well, why didn't they figure, why didn't those, those Native Americans figure it out faster? And, and the bottom line is, how can you really imagine it? You know, in, if, you, if you ascribe to the notion that there was a large, the, the mound builders, right, in the roughly the middle in the Mississippi, and and you and we know about the Mayans. We know about the Aztecs. These were there were a couple of huge centers which were sort of you know rumored to be if you you know they were they were immense. They were considered unusual. They were uh, it, it wasn't like you know that that the 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 ground was littered with them. 
And I think that one of the things that could happen here, and it has to do with what Eric was saying about buying time, is not very many people from that culture ever were taken to Europe to see what it was like and to understand when Europeans would talk about cities. And it was not just one or two, but particularly when you got on the continent, it was one after another, after another, after another. And the ability to imagine numbers, and I think this is one of, for whatever its failings or, or benefits may be, uh, you still see uh, it's convincingly portrayed. And there's a lot that suggests that, it, that this is not totally a historical in uh, Dances with Wolves, when, when the one, the, our, our sort of our lead Native American says to our, our protagonist, how many, how many are coming? And he says, like the stars in the sky. Yeah. And, and that's the only way to describe it, that this model, there, there's, a, there's a, an inability to imagine that a world could be so different, which by the way, for me, was like, I would find myself, you were talking about writing the, the sort of the indigenous uh, European and American contact. It's a lot, <laughs> some of my work in science fiction with writing first contact novels uh, certainly, certainly stood me in good stead because it's really what's going on at that moment. Yeah. 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 Uh, one thing that's different in the 1632 universe is that people, Native Americans, more of them do get to know Europe quicker and they get to read yes. Cranfield books. So they actually, there are now some who do know what, what at least one possible future would be. Um, and, and, and some of them are coming, some stay in Europe, but some of them are coming back determined to try to do something about it. Um, it's a, it's a, uh, it's a fascinating fictional universe to work in, and, but it's complicated. It, and, and one of the things we've tried very hard to do in the series is keep it realistic in the sense of not making things Pollyannish. Uh, you know, I mean, what's really likely to happen, or at least plausible to happen. Um, and you also don't give them easy technological solutions that a mining town from West Virginia wouldn't have. Yeah, yeah, right. no, no, it, it, yeah, it, it's, it's, well, I mean, it's, it's, Chuck's made this point any number of times. That the, the biggest single thing that came through the future had the impact was the books and the libraries. I mean, it, it's just, you know, and, and what astonishes the Americans is the books that had the most impact aren't the technical books and the ones that they know, they're the history books because everybody wants to go read them so they can think they can hopefully predict or, or guide themselves in the future. Nostradamus. The that what they do discombobulates it. So there's still, <laughs> there's not gonna be any magical solution to it. It's, it's fun to write though, it really is. It absolutely is. And, and one of the things that I like about it which is which you don't find, I think, in um, in a lot of alternate histories. Not naming any in particular, is that the, I think the the series, in some degree, thrives on paying very close attention to the law of unintended consequences. Mm -hmm. um, it, when not to spoil anything for anybody, but when you get to the end of this book, not only does the pressure that's been exerted upon the Dutch landholders, which came over through the 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 uh, the nineteen heron, uh, the the Dutch West India Company, who re they realize they're getting pushed out one way or the other, 
the answer they find to that, the allies they make as a result of that, and how that is informed by the history that was, it, usually history has been on the side of the good guys, not this time. <laughs> as, I, as I like to say, you could look at the model of Southern slavery and piracy and things like that as all the things to defeat or depending on your moral and ethical template, you could see that as a business model. It's like pretty good ideas. Let's, you know, I didn't, yeah, never thought know, of they, that slavery they thing. Before. They didn't realize what was going to go wrong if they'd only put all these pieces together. And I am, I am really looking forward to that because if you think the Spanish are bad, holy gosh, you know, the, as, as Eric was saying, the Spanish to some degree, look, you, you, could, you could make them out to be bad guys and gals, but really you're talking about Reconquista is, is not so far in the past. Oh, sure. You are talking about a, a nation that, that probably owed its survival to a highly militarized absolute hierarchy that was able to marshal these forces to take its country back. And, and what a surprise that it became the primary hotbed of, when you get right down to it, um, counter-reformation counter and, and all of the other sort of rigidities that, that we see. It's, it, it's survive, all it's doing, it's like any creature that said, wow, we survived. What are our survival traits? The problem is income, income the, these 3,500 troublesome individuals from the future, which basically have the, the newsflash, if you want to boil down to it is, you know, age of enlightenment and age of reason works good and <laughs> do good. And, and these, these are, I think it was Heidegger who said the tragedy is defined by two, two characters who have, whose objectives directly preclude each other. And I think that there's a cultural preclusion that's being played out between the emphasis and impulses brought in by, by the uptimers and Spain. And they represent sort of extremes on either end of a, of a spectrum. Yeah, it's like and warriors, that, blood and honor versus merchants and freedom. And, and, and so I don't, I don't really see it as beating up on the Spanish, but they are the creatures. Yeah. They are creatures of the system that help them survive as a nation. And that doesn't, that doesn't let go very quickly. Mm. Well, uh, let's to return to the story, if you if y'all don't mind, to talk about Eddie Cantrell a little bit. Tell us about his character. Now he has found a girl, um, and a good part of this uh, book is that developing relationship. Uh, <laughs> he found a girl. What is it? There's the John, the John Lennon lyric, or or perhaps she found, or she, I should say, <laughs> she found me, because uh, <laughs> you got to wonder about that. Yeah. But I'll have Eric, to, because Eric is the one I that to say, the Cantrell story. I have to say that that one of the parts of writing this series I enjoyed the most was developing the relationship between Eddie and Anne Catherine in sixteen thirty-four to Baltimore. Uh, and just developing this this West Virginia kid who's finding himself involved with the daughter of the king of, of Denmark. <laughs> and She's something of a Valkyrie. Um, um, I had a lot of fun with that. That that was that was really enjoyable. But um, Eddie's an interesting character. We, we've had two major 
characters in a series who start as teenage, not quite boys, because they're both 18 by the time we first encounter them in 1632, but, but and Jeff Higgins and, and Eddie Cantrell, their two friends wind up being killed, uh, one of them in 1633 and the other in uh, Ottoman Onslaught, if I recall correctly. Um, but they were never major characters. But Eddie and Jeff wind up becoming, you know, you're dealing with these two American teenage boys who wind up in very different ways. Uh, both of them following military careers, very different ones, and getting involved, but the, 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 the axis around which their evolution takes place, sort of be, is their romantic involvement with, with a particular woman. And in the case of Jeff, it's Gretchen Richter. In the case of, of Eddie Cantrell, it's Anne Catherine, the daughter. Two wilting wallflowers have ever existed. Yeah, I know, I know. And they're both extremely dynamic women, but they're about as different as you could imagine in other respects. Uh, one of them is royalty, the other is very much not. Um, and it's it's just been fun developing those characters and, and watching them grow. And they're both It's something I personally believe is that that, that many people, I, I don't know if I go so far as say most people, but many people, it's not that particularly rare. If you give them the opportunity, will usually rise to the circumstances or at least go a damn long ways. And you particularly tend to see that in time of war um, because yeah. It's the reason I tend to write so much of my fiction takes place in time of war. And I don't consider myself a military SF writer, although I do write a lot of military stuff. But I like to set stories in time of war because you've got people under so much stress and strain that you can develop them in broader, brighter colors and, and remaining realistic. I mean, there are all kinds of ways. The stakes don't get any higher than that. Well, that and also the opportunities people yeah. have to, to, you know, there are, you know, and then when peace arrives, they may, especially if it's a well-established, settled society, they'll probably fade back into relative obscurity. But during the, the, the time of, of the conflict, they can, you know, I mean, all you got to do is read, for instance, any histories of World War II, and you will find all kinds of characters in there that are just immensely impressive um, and you know and, and rose to what are really terrible conditions but they rose to the challenge and that's what you're seeing with different ways about Jeff and Eddie. What and, is um, um, what what all right so Eddie and Kath, first of all like um, Anne and Catherine um, how, how are they getting how do they get together because Eddie's out on the boat. He's on the intrepid fighting. You gotta, you gotta go back to. You gotta go back early. You gotta go back to. Well, I mean, how do they physically get it on? Because oh, they get it know, on a lot in this. Well, book. look, they have um. their own cabin for Pete's sake, and and you know, I mean, he's he's an officer, and she is the queen or the daughter. She, she's not the princess because she's not in line of succession, but she is the queen's daughter our king's daughter rather. And, um, you know, I'm sure they manage. And you know what, in fiction, you don't really have to go all the way down to that level of detail. Um, yeah, yeah. Well, there like, is- Although uh, I do on several occasions. 
Um, well, you, you certainly imply a lot of bouncing. Book, of course, uh, Anne uh, Catherine is is sort of uh, it, she is a force to be reckoned with increasingly in the in the life and the political life of uh, Orangista in in. Yeah, um, yeah. Uh, on she has a role on land. And and so and so and basically that be, that is evolving into their it is evolved into their base enough that they by the end of the book as people will see when they read it um, there's enough foresight to realize we have too many of our eggs in one basket here and there are and there are steps being taken towards that but what it means is that every time Eddie is coming back from one of his uh, missions or assignments uh, they are they are in fact. Um, co-locating, cohabitating, and co-everything else. So there, there you go. That, that there's, a, there's a definite feel of influence. I don't know if you admit it or not, or, but it certainly felt like a hornblower beat to quarters uh, feel here because that, you know, that's the story of beat to quarters in the, in the romantic thing is that, that hornblower falls for uh, one of the Wesley sisters, right? I, I got to tell you, I, I'd only, I only read the first two books. So mm -hmm. I don't know. So I, so if, if it was influenced, it was uh, it was that one time when I was playing around with a Ouija board, I guess, well, because it, I, I've not read the books. It, 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 is, it isn't in the following sense that, that first of all, they're both very, very, um, and, and I give all credit to Chuck for this. Uh, thankfully, he had to do the research and the work, not me. Uh, <laughs> Uh, which is the very detailed depiction of the actual nautical side of 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 of, of sailing and warfare uh, in times of sailing. Now, granted, they do have some some um, some engine power that that Hornblower did not have, which appears periodically. But still, it's a very accurate depiction of warfare in the age of wooden warships. Uh, and that's a lot of what attracts people, both to the Hornblower books, the um, the Aubrey Madison books that uh, um, um, oh Christ, I'm blanking on his name. Patrick O'Brien. Uh, Patrick O'Brien wrote, yeah. and so forth. The, as far as characters go, the one difference between what Chuck and I have written and Hornblower is that Hornblower is a fascinating character, but he's got this kind of uh, of <laughs> he's a melancholy fellow. I mean, he, he's got this kind of uh, self-doubt and, and he's a very striking character, but um, that's not Eddie Cantrell. Um, yeah. um, he's, kind of he's kind of a, a child herald sort, um, yeah. a yeah, Byronic he, fellow. But, but both of these men are extremely proactive and they just go at it and they try to win no matter what. And Eddie just won't give up. That's what's so fun about it. Is yeah. Eddie's gonna, Eddie's Although it comes gonna, from very different places in those two characters. I think Hornblower is very clearly a character from the two books that, that I read and then what more I know about the series. He's a creature of his time. He understands that you either do things or you fall by the wayside. Uh, there's a there's a kind of there's a I don't want to call him hard nosed, but there's a there's a sort of determination about him, which is an acknowledgement of the fact that the the world doesn't put anything on your plate. And and I think I think that plus a sense of duty plus uh, clearly loyalty to and and duty to his ship and his shipmates propels him forward. It's a very military ethos 
for all of that, Eddie, Eddie may be carrying rank, and he may be the closest thing to the other uptime naval officer that the, the, down, the uptimers have brought with him, so to speak. But he's a kid. He's a kid who was a, he was a wargaming geek. And he, he was the only person that when Simpson said, here are the things we've got to do to make this happen, this was the only person who knew what the hell he was talking about. And as Eric said, he rose to that occasion. He fell into this when you get right down to it. Hornblower aimed himself at it. And there's I another, think, yeah, there's another and, and just to Just to go with that, that last point about the, their determination to do things, mm. Eddie is not a Pollyanna but I think his attitude is sort of, it's more on the, on the level of, if not now, when, if not us, who? And there's a sort of intrinsic, I think very American optimism sort of connected to, to an external proactivity. That was part one of a two-part interview with Eric Flint and Charles E. Gannon discussing 1637, No Peace Beyond the Line. Part two will be available next week on the podcast. Here is another entry in David Weber's Honor Harrington series masterpiece, Uncompromising Honor. Honor keeps her promise. The Salarian League. For hundreds of years they have borne the banner of human civilization, but the bureaucratic mandarins who rule today's league are corrupt and looking for scapegoats. They've decided the upstart star kingdom of Manticore must be annihilated. Uncompromising courage. Honor Harrington has worn the star kingdom's uniform for half a century. Very few know war the way Honor Harrington does. So far, hers has been a voice of caution. But now the Mandarins have committed atrocities such as the galaxy has not known in a thousand years. They have finally killed too many of the people Honor Harrington loves. Uncompromising vengeance. Now Honor Harrington is coming for the Salarian League, and hell is riding in her wake. And now, David Weber's Uncompromising Honor. Sir, we just lost Mycroft. How? The single-word question sounded preposterously calm in McAvoy's own ears, and Dunstan Meyer shook her head. I don't know, sir. We just lost the FTL feed from the master platforms. They were about... Excuse me, ma'am. Captain Chasnikov, one of Dunstan Meyer's assistants, said. What? The ops officer half-snapped. Ma'am, according to Skywatch, some of the Ghost Riders picked up Grazer Fire right on top of the platforms. Grazer Fire? Dunstan Myers repeated. That deep inside the limit? That's what Skywatch says, ma'am, Chesnikov said, and McAvoy and Dunstan Myers looked at one another in shock. Then the CNO shook himself. Right this minute, how they did it matters a hell of a lot less than the fact that they did it, he snapped. Block ship impellers to full readiness now. They may adjust position on thrusters, but their wedges do not go active without my order. Yes, sir. Dunstan Myers nodded sharply, pointing at the comm, and Chasnikov started speaking urgently to Cassandra Defense. In the meantime, Cheryl, McAvoy went on, upload the targeting queue directly to the pods. Sir, that's going to take at least another 13 or 14 minutes. We'll have to start from scratch, Dunstan Myers pointed out. 
And without Mycroft, accuracy's going to be poor even for Apollo. It'll be a hell of a lot better than no accuracy at all, McAvoy grated. Yes, sir. That was another entry in the complete audiobook serialization of Uncompromising Honor by David Weber. And that's it for the podcast. Thanks to audible.com and to podcast theme composer Ruth Judkowitz. And a bottle full of warm westerlies to make for fair sailing. And a couple of thunder rolls with mayo and thin sliced corn buffalo meat for sustenance. Plus thanks, praise, and gratitude for Eric Flint and Charles E. Gannon, authors of 1637, No Peace Beyond the Line. Please join us next time here at the hammering art of science fiction and fantasy. And keep reaching for the stars. 